Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by C5 Plus CCIM Global Summit. It will be in Atlanta this year, September 28th to September 30th. And there's a lot of great speakers, including Casey Conway, David Robinson, Chris Voss, and yours truly, Michael Bull and some other great speakers. It's a great three-day event. Uh, learn more at c5summit.realestate. Well, we have a great show for you today. We're going to talk about the office market, and I think it's really the most interesting sector right now because of all the question marks, right? With some companies downsizing, some companies still working from home, but yet we're starting to see some companies want uh, the benefits to the employees and, in my view, and to the employers of getting back in, in the office and requiring more folks to get back into the office. But how is the office market performing? And of course, we've had huge, quick, fast interest rate hikes uh, from the Fed. And it almost seems to me they're just trying to really wreck the banks and, and the economy. And they're doing a pretty good job so far. Well, please welcome my guest. It's Phil Mobley. Phil is National Director of Office Analytics with the CoStar Group. Phil, good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Always a good time uh, when we have these chats. So uh, pleased to be back on the show. Well, thank you. And first of all, let's kind of look at the office market overall. When you look at the entire U.S., you know, how is the, the space performing right now? Well, it's, uh, it continues to be challenged. We've got uh, vacancy the way we track it uh, at 13.3% today nationally, and that's up from 9.5% entering 2020. Now we at CoStar track sort of the entire universe of office space, including owner-occupied and medical. So if you exclude those two groups, the owner-occupied properties and then medical office, then you can add roughly 400 basis points to that vacancy rate, um, putting it around 17, 17 plus percent. And that's probably more in line with what you might see from um, reports from some of the major, major brokerages who tend to focus on that least competitive space. Uh, but really, we're all seeing the same trend, you know, this upward trend rise of 400 plus, almost 400 basis points since the beginning of 2020. Um, from an absorption standpoint, we've seen tenants give back about 160 million square feet since the beginning of 2020, including about 48 million so far this year. So there there have been some ups and downs since 2020, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Um, but from our perspective, you know, it's, it's a, a soft demand market, and we expect that to continue, frankly. Um, our forecast has overall vacancy going up to 17% with that non-owner-occupied, non-medical going up over 20, 21%. Um, sometime around the end of 2026. So we see kind of a long road ahead before we hit the bottom in terms of the overall leasing market. Um, the rationale for that is essentially that over half of leases that were executed pre-pandemic have yet to face an expiration event. And as those roll in the next few years, we expect tenants to continue to behave more like they have in say the last six or nine months 
than the way they behaved in say 2018, 2019. Um, so we think this negative demand shock is, is gonna continue to play out. Our forecast does still include a mild recession happening, um, you know, beginning at some point over the next six to nine months. And so that just kind of adds to, to the situation on the demand side. Now, this is a really uh, uneven way that we see this playing out, and we'll talk some more about that. Um, but from a valuation standpoint, we see values down about 10% so far based on what transactions have occurred. Uh, we forecast values to decline another 20 or so percent, again, by around 2026. And that would be a total uh, decline of total price correction in line with what we saw during the Great Recession, which I think intuitively makes some sense, right? When you think about what happened to the economy then, what's been happening to the economy, but the office market in particular in the last three years. So we've got a long way to go, but I, I do think, you know, and as we talk further about this, I, I do think we have a little bit more understanding of, of which types of properties, which markets will perform relatively better and worse uh, as we move forward. That overall decline for office values around the U.S., you said a total of 30% or is that a total of 40%? Total of 30% is what we're forecasting. Now, we, you know, we've already seen some properties retrade at values uh, lower than that. So, you know, a couple of resales in San Francisco that are 40 50, 60% below what they might've sold at in the 2010s. So that's the average, you know, there, there will be relative winners and losers as there always are in times of, of economic challenge. Yeah, and I guess you see that in, in class of building and geographically, right? We do, so uh, class is an interesting one because we see higher cap rates on the class B as opposed to class A. Uh, on the other hand, we actually see higher vacancy in class A overall as opposed to class B. And so there's an interesting dynamic going on there. Um, part of that is because when new space delivers to the market, it tends to come in disproportionately at the class A level. So there's, there's, just, there's a denominator effect going on there that keeps vacancies a little bit higher. Um, Part of it as well is that the, the class A slice of the market is where we see the majority of this record level of sublease inventory. You know, we have sublease inventory up well over 100%. I think last time I checked, it was up 130% or so from the end of 2019. Um, and that space tends to be concentrated in uh, the class A slice of the market. Um, so... Uh, by the way, that sublease space is about 60% vacant already, which is uh, also unusually high. So not only is there more sublease on the market, but more of that space is vacant, which I think really indicates that it's superfluous to the, the master tenant's needs right now. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that plays out. It's one of the things I'm, I'm watching really closely. Yeah. What about geographically? What differences are you seeing there? Well, there are big differences geographically. And I think one really important point to make about what's happening in office is, uh, as I think we've, we've intuitively suspected for a while, there are and there are going to be neighborhoods and markets that 
that feel very strong and very, you know, I'll say normal relative to what we got used to in the late 2010s. Uh, you look at a market like Miami, it's performing very well. If you look at a market like Las Vegas, it's performing uh, quite well. And so, you know, the long-term demand drivers of population growth and, and corporate migration to the market, whether that's relocating their headquarters or establishing a regional office and a net new regional office, those things are in play in some markets like that, those Sunbelt markets um, with relatively diverse economies. And I'll, I'll come back to that. Uh, on the other hand, when you look at uh, downtowns specifically of major markets, uh, they're associated with long, expensive commutes. They're associated, some of them, particularly on the West Coast, San Francisco, Seattle, San Jose, are associated with a, a high proportion of technology workers who tend to be the ones who attend the office with the lowest frequency. Um, so those are definitely risk factors in terms of you know the markets or the, the sub-markets or neighborhoods where these office buildings tend to be located. I think the other thing is the, the, relative, um, the, the relative distribution of commercial activity that's in a particular neighborhood. So what I mean by that is, if you think about the central business district of uh, New York City or, or San Francisco and the financial district in Boston, downtown Atlanta even, um, then what you've got is a, a very strong concentration of office relative to other commercial property types. And on the other hand, if you think, so Michael, you're in Atlanta, if you think about what's going on uh, near the Battery, where the Atlanta Braves stadium is, um, there's office over there, and um, I'd be willing to bet that's performing pretty well, in part because it is part of a more diverse eco ecosystem of commercial properties. You know, it's the the work and play dynamic. There's there's other uh, attractions and activities to bring people to those neighborhoods, and office benefits from that. There's places that people just generally want to be. Yeah, that's a good point, and I think uh, a lot of office users these days are trying to get their employees back in the in the office, and if they're in a location where the employees would like to walk out of the building and, and do something else, you know, be a popular area. That makes a lot of sense. So what do you see for leasing trends uh, from tenants these days? You guys attract the leases as well. We do. And it's part of what's informing our, our forecasts being, you know, on the pessimistic side, we, we do see continued net absorption in the, the next call it 24 plus months. Um, and one reason for that is what we're seeing in the leasing market today and, and over the past, you know, I'll call it nine months. I'd say the biggest thing that we're seeing is a reduction in the average size of a new lease, uh, certainly relative to what we saw in the five years leading up to the pandemic. We see average sizes down about 20%. Uh, which is bringing down total leasing volume. And, you know, leasing is a leading indicator of absorption. So in the coming six, nine, 12 months, you know, we think this is going to show up in the, the actual absorption stats. But in terms of the number of tenants active in the market, in the last six months or so, that's been relatively normal. It's been close to what it was in the late 2010s. The difference is that the, those tenants are taking on smaller leases. And, and there's two things, at least two things going on here. One is that you've got larger companies that when they face those lease expirations, 
they are taking less space. You know, they, they have a less, they have a lower need for space per worker than they once did. Um, part of that is certainly related to lower office attendance, you know, hybrid work arrangements. I think part of it is they're actually paying attention now to utilization uh, in, in a much more disciplined way than they may have been five, 10 years ago. And I think another piece of it is, um, though hiring has certainly slowed recently, even as these companies continued to hire in the last three years, they, they realized they didn't necessarily need to acquire and commit to space in advance of onboarding new employees, that they were able to do that uh, under a flexible workplace model um, without committing to, to more space long term. So, so big tenants are tending to take less space, uh, often associated with moving to higher quality space or space that works better for them and maybe a different submarket or different building. And the other piece of this is that smaller tenants are disproportionately active in the market right now. Um, so, you know, if you think of a small law firm or, or CPA firm who may have been in one location for the last 10, 20, 30 years, well, now they're looking at the market and they're thinking, well, we could get space in a, a high rise building in a different town, a, a different submarket, maybe downtown, a, you know, brand new building that's being delivered in a different area. And they may not need less space. They may, you know, they may be working in much the same way that they did in 2018, 2019. Um, but they just happen to be relatively small users, you know, 2,500, 3,000 square feet, as opposed to your 100, 150,000 square foot large tenants. And so these smaller tenants, we see them being less likely to just renew in place and more likely to pick up and move. So even if their space requirement doesn't change, they are representing a larger proportion of the tenants in the market. And, and that's also helping to pull down the average lease size. Yeah. Well, certainly a great time for, for tenants to uh, lease space or to, um, or to buy buildings. We've certainly seen uh, good activity at our shop on, on government leased buildings and on uh, medical office buildings and on uh, user activity to, to your point out there looking, Hey, this is a great time to maybe upgrade my space location, maybe uh, attract uh, you know, my employees back to the office. One of the things we're also seeing selling office buildings is the utilization of these smaller tenants. To your point, they're using their space more too, right? They're, uh, they're, they're in there using the space as some of the larger tenants, you know, you go in and it's a bit of a, a ghost town. One of the things that of course we're dealing with in every sector and certainly in office as well is this, the rapid rise in interest rates. And you, you talked earlier, uh, Phil, about the uh, decrease in values that you guys are seeing around the country overall. What are you seeing for lender trends uh, related to distressed loans when some of these office buildings just really don't have the, the NOI to, to, for the debt coverage? Uh, what kind of trends are you seeing? Yeah, well, it's tough. I mean, one, one thing that we've seen in our CMBS data is the delinquency rise, delinquency rate rise fairly sharply so far this year. Um, actually didn't rise all that much in August. It's just south of 5% which historically is um, not great, not terrible for the office market. I think the fact that it has risen so quickly from about 2% at the beginning of the year up to close to five now is, is a warning. Um, the rest of this year, so just you know, the last quarter and a half of this year, 
has a lot of CMBS loan maturity coming due. And so compared to maybe a full year in 25, 26, 27, uh, it's about the same amount, $15 billion or so. And so that combination of a loans maturing, more of these uh, owners struggling or choosing not to, uh, to pay um, with the delinquency rate rising, I, I think that's a warning sign for sure. So if you look at, for example, the, uh, the, the regulators, the FDIC, the, the Federal Reserve, the Office of Currency Control, that uh, have come together uh, in the past, uh, and again, recently, to provide guidance on loan workouts. They did this after the, during the Great Recession. They did it again a few months ago. And with respect to office buildings, you know, their guidance included some notes on, hey, here's some situations you may find yourself in. One would be you're, you own a building with uh, you know, a single tenant that occupies 80, 90 plus percent of the building. They're using the space. Uh, they're extremely likely to renew. They've you know, a good credit tenant, like the you know the the tenants that you were talking about, Michael, including government. There, the loan is performing, and yeah, your uh, your NOI relative to your debt service may look a little different when you look toward working out or refinancing this loan, but that income stream is there, and the ratio may not be quite as high as we would like it to be, but. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's latitude there to work out that loan and extend it, right? Because it's performing, the space is being used. There's value there. On the other hand, uh, in a multi-tenant building with a lot of near-term lease exposure and some major tenants that are not using the space, uh, you know, very underutilized, then that's a really big red flag. It's going to be hard to work out those loans. The regulators are going to put a lot of scrutiny on that. Um, that even if you could sort of write out the pro forma and, and make the numbers work, just the risk involved of actually uh, attempting to retain those tenants, uh, the, the low utilization is a, is a sign that they're unlikely to renew in the eyes of the regulators. So those will be much harder to work out and I think trigger some of that further 20% decline in volumes that we are forecasting. Um, so the combination of maturities of lease exposure risk, you know, that's the combination to really watch for uh, in terms of when and how quickly the market's going to continue its shift that we all see coming. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting time that, that we're in. Um, we just took over a, a bank foreclosed office building that was mostly all vacant and Surprisingly enough, we uh, got under contract within 30 days and just had a, a lot of interest. So, uh, you know, one one borrower and bank's uh, problem can be another investor's uh, opportunity. You know, Phil, and where do you see opportunities uh, in the market, either geographically or, or class of, of building or, 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 or user? Or what do you see? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what we've seen so far um, is that in the last three years, in the aggregate, tenants have pre preferred high quality, premium quality space that they acquired directly from landlords. So at CoStar, we use a, a star rating system that's analogous to, you know, the class rating, class A, class B, class C. We, we use 
one to five star with the idea being that a five star property in one market is comparable to five star in any other market. Um, so we, we try to make it kind of geography agnostic. And so what we've seen is that the uh, the demand for space net absorption has been positive in five star space that tenants acquire directly from landlords uh, in the last three years and has been negative everywhere else in the aggregate. So that's an interesting signal to me that you know it's it's the clearest definition or, or example of the flight to quality trend that we've all heard so much about. So on the other hand, even within five star inventory, we've seen sublease inventory increase. And that to me suggests that at some point that I expect will be soon, uh, we're going to see tenant preferences begin to shift because I think that space, you know, five star space being high quality, well located, desirable space. I expect that we're going to see that sublease inventory come down um, at the top of the market. We haven't yet. So we've we've seen tenants still continue to prefer direct space. And I think that's because they're looking at number one, the quality of the building, number two, the quality of the build out. And so the, the landlords have been willing uh, and eager to do all they can to get tenants in that space, including uh, generous TI allowances, other lease concessions. But there's a limit on how far they can go, particularly in this environment where we've seen interest rates go up uh, so fast and so much. So pretty soon, uh, financing those TIs is just not going to be feasible for the landlords, uh, given given the cost of capital that they're facing. So what I expect to see, although we have not seen it happen, at least in the aggregate yet, I, I expect to see this preference for direct premium space begin to slacken yeah, as landlords are really just unable uh, to offer any more uh, concession packages that are just eating into their NOI. You know, we've seen some that are 40, 50% of the value of the lease if you, if you look at it over the term. Um, and that's just not going to be sustainable. So I expect tenants to begin to take a second look at this sublease inventory, um, which they can often acquire at a 30% discount or so. Um, and say to themselves, yeah, we may not get this highly customized build out, but what we are going to get is a lower lease rate. And we're still going to be in this really nice building um, that we think is going to work well for us, help us with our work, help us with our talent attraction. Um, so that's the thing that I am working, that I am watching for in terms of you know, a shift in the market. Because on the one hand, I think that will be healthy. Um, it will help us really uh, find where the market is. And on the other hand, that 30% discount on sublease rents is going to have some downward pressure on rents overall. Um, uh, and similarly, our, our CEO pointed this out on CNBC uh, a few weeks ago, that at some point, some of these buildings that are, uh, are just not able to perform, they're not able to refinance. And to your point, Michael, another buyer could, could come in and see a real opportunity there. Um, but that buyer, one strategy they may take is 
to come in and to lease that space out at, you know, I won't say a race to the floor, but at, at a, a discounted level of rent, right? Um, that's going to be good for that building. It's going to be good for the tenants who move in there, but it's going to supply more downward pressure to rents overall. Uh, so, you know, tenants, if they begin to start favoring the sublease space, if they see these uh, newly acquired or, you know, maybe even acquired in distress scenarios, buildings where landlords are coming in at a low basis and offering lower rents, um, when we see tenants starting to prefer those types of spaces, I think we're going to really see the leasing market reset. We're going to find where the bottom truly is. Yeah. Also seems like a great opportunity for users, for tenants who do want to acquire buildings. And we've certainly seen uh, that pick up as well. Is that something you guys track when an owner-occupant buys versus an uh, investor? Absolutely. And we've seen that as well. So uh, relative to its share of inventory, uh, owner-occupied space has performed better than would be expected. Um, so it's something like in the last eight years, it's something like 20% of newly constructed space um, has been constructed for owner occupancy, but it's accounted for closer to 25% of the space that tenants have ab actually absorbed. Um, so yeah, we're seeing the same thing. Owner occupancy, medical space is still performing well, uh, essentially no increase in the aggregate in vacancy and in medical office space. So there are, there are certainly um, opportunities in both of those types of properties. Yeah. And of course you guys see it and our audience uh, knows it, but uh, you know, every market's different, uh, every sub market and sometimes buildings across the street from each other can be doing extremely uh, differently. Right. They can. And, and I think one of the real keys in thinking about the office market, and I, I keep hearing it said, and, and it's true that, there is an analog to what we've seen happen in retail in the last 10 to 15 years, where the, the retail that's performing is doing really well. Um, and the retail that's not performing is doing really poorly. And there, there are still, you know, some class B malls that are um, still shaking out, right? You know, not a lot of activity happening there. And, and, the, the municipalities in which they reside are thinking, okay, what can, what can this space be converted into? And I think something similar is happening in an office where there are going to be neighborhoods where uh, the office market looks like it's humming because it is humming. There are plenty of people there. The rents are stable or rising. Um, the space is being absorbed and there's a lot of vibrancy there. Uh, on the other hand, I think there are going to be areas where that's just not the case, and uh, it's going to be difficult at at really any rent level to backfill some of the space that's in an undesirable building and um, a neighborhood that people just don't want to be in. Yeah, it's interesting. I, we're seeing a good bit of uh, mixed-use development on some of these sites, too, where some of these office environments are becoming more mixed-use. Yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense as well, because um, if you look at the performance of office in extremely office-centric areas, you know, your, your financial districts of major cities, um, they're not performing as well as those that are in more, what I'll say, commercially diverse areas, so a you know, higher proportion of 
uh, retail and even multifamily space, or these are areas that people want to be in regardless. Um, and so the the office portion of those areas has tended to perform relatively better. Yeah. Well, Phil, what would you leave our audience with to think about related to office? I would say that um, the idea of being fully remote um, and companies working without offices at all, certainly still a thing, um, particularly for your small tech startups. But for most companies, and you, you see Amazon even this week, this week talking about the importance of, of being together, um, that the that is a real thing that people being physically uh, proximate to each other is crucial uh, for the performance of an organization. Now you have to take that in context of what the big tech companies in particular are saying, but not just them. They're they're talking about coming back in this hybrid manner, you know, three plus days a week as opposed to all five. And so there's an adjustment to demand, right? The, to how much space they need, how it's gonna be configured, what type of space it is. And frankly, we are still waiting for the full reset of that so that we can understand what is the relationship of uh, employment to need for office space. Um, so we're not quite to where we understand what that relationship is going to be. But I think it's it's very safe to say that, that there is still a relationship there, that there is still this need and this desire among employers, but also employees uh, to be physically together with their coworkers. Um, so the way I think we're going to see this play out is, uh, is this winners and losers. Uh, I don't want to say zero sum game. It's been a zero sum game so far. It may not always be that way. Um, but yeah, that there's a reset underway, um, but there is true value in good quality office space. Tenants still need that. Yep. Well said. Phil Mobley, thanks for joining us, sir. Good work. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. And uh, that's Phil Mobley. He is National Director of Office Analytics with the CoStar Group. And we thank you for uh, being on. And thank you, audience, for sharing the show. Please subscribe. Please like. Please share. Uh, please reach out to us. If you have any questions, thoughts, ideas for me, my email is michael at bullrealty.com. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. For commercial brokerage sales and leasing in the Southeast U.S., contact our show host by email at michael at bullrealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success Strategies, 21 incredible one-hour agent training videos. Learn more at commercialagentsuccess.com. By C5 CCIM Summit, three days of commercial real estate networking, learning, and investing. Learn more and register at c5summit.realestate. And by Lumet, for senior housing, healthcare, and multifamily financing, visit lumet.com. For more podcasts and videos, subscribe and visit CREshow.com.